Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. This week, I have a really close friend. That's rare. I've had one other on the, the show so far. Um, this one is Johan Hari. You may know him <laughs> from such... We're one... already chuckling. Because <laughs> Johan and I, have, like, he's incredibly funny, but he in, in, in his podcast and in, in his public appearances, he's so remarkably disciplined and constrained and, and elegant. Um, so I'm going to try and knock him off that stride today if I can. Um, <laughs> he, he wrote Chasing the Scream, this fantastic history of the war on drugs, uh, one of the more fascinating books on the whole topic. Um, been turned into now uh, an Oscar-nominated movie, right? Was that it? Was well, who? Yeah, yeah. The United States versus Billy Holiday. Yes, because Billy and Holiday. And an eight-part documentary series with Samuel L. Jackson that will have come out just before this podcast. It's called The Fix. People can watch it on Roku. On what? Roku? On the Roku channel. I tell you what, it's a complete head fuck <laughs> to hear Samuel L. Jackson saying words that you wrote. I, oh, I consider yes. asking him. I considered asking him to record my answer machine message as his character from Pulp Fiction, but I thought it would be a little bit disrespectful. But fuck <laughs> me, it's weird. It's very weird. Well, this is a man he whose words. Do it in a weird, posh British voice, though. So, <laughs> well, Samuel Jackson uh, is 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 obviously um, just the latest of the many major celebrities and human beings who have come to Johan's <laughs> support and defense over the years. Um, it counts among his close personal friends. Or Oprah and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Maybe it's the no, Dalai Lama. Ali the Dalai Lama called me fat. That fucking oh, that's bitch. true. That he did. My friend. He called He's you horrible. fat. And me, Oprah, <laughs> I know slightly. I've been to her house. I would love to. Yeah. No, I'd like uh, you to. I'd Oprah. like. But before we start, because it's an important. I don't want to steal our focus, but so to speak. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> in what circumstances did the Dalai Lama call you fat? Oh, he's such a fucking bitch. So I was really young, <laughs> and uh, I interviewed him. I was a baby journalist. I might remember some of the details of this wrong. It was many years ago. It's all right. And basically everyone who ever interviews the Dalai Lama says, your holiness, can I just say, you're the greatest human being who's ever lived. And they try to rent a small flat somewhere up his anus for the duration of the interview. <laughs> and I think, you know, when you're with a powerful person, even when it's someone who's broadly admirable, and of course I'm opposed to the Chinese occupation in Tibet, mm-hmm. I think you should challenge them, right? So I did some digging on the Dalai Lama. And it turns out... <laughs> you dig some, dug some dirt on the Dalai Lama? <laughs> There's some, there's some fucking proper dirt on the Dalai Lama. Yeah, okay, tell so us. I've got to swear I'll pull this back. It's all right. The, so um, he says that disabled people are being punished for what they did in a previous life. He says that gay people, well, he's very anti-gay. An exact quote from him, I think, is, you shouldn't use the other holes. Uh, <laughs> a sentiment you and I have defied vigorously throughout the years. Not together, I should stress. Um, so I thought, you know, I better, I better, I better, you know, I'll ask him some difficult questions. So we start off in a very friendly way. You do with all interviews. And then I start asking him, you know, about some of these things, not in a particularly aggressive way, but, and um, he started pretending he didn't speak English. He starts going, oh, I, uh, I don't understand this question. I'm like, I know you speak English, right? I've seen you give speeches in English. I know you can understand what I'm saying. So he's sort of getting very testy and his kind of people are giving me very dirty looks. So I thought, oh God, they can throw me out. I better bring it back to something where we agree. And I said, you know, your holiness, You've always been very critical of income inequality in the West. And he said, yeah, I don't see why people need so much money. We each only have one stomach. Then he paused and said, except you. 
You clearly have at least three. Like I was a cow with three stomachs, right? And it wasn't my finest journalistic hour. I said, well, you're quite fat as well. <laughs> Did you really? Anyway, yeah. And after I wrote about this, I mean, I mean, this is from memory after, it must be 20 years ago. But um, And after I wrote about this, I got the world's first ever Buddhist death threats, which I was very proud of. And I wrote back and said, you're going to have at least three cyclists of woodlouse now, you bastard, because you sent me this death threat. So, yeah. By contrast, Oprah, impeccably beautiful, unbelievably clever, as wonderful as you would expect her to be. So I want to be clear, I do not bracket them together. Also fat. <laughs> like, not fucking like your best friend, fat. like your best friend Elton John, who's also a little Don't chubby. Ever, Andrew. All right. I want, I'm going to cut it up. I'm going to. I'm going to drag us back to want, the point I, of this no, podcast. No, I, apo- I hear that I, I apologize to Oprah for implying that she's a little little chubby occasionally. But anyway, Thank you. which is okay. That was not a good enough apology, but I will tolerate it for now. <laughs> Go on. Um, he's also the author of uh, Lost Connections, which is a book about the social aspects of depression. And his latest book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And this is something that Johan's been thinking about for quite a while. What is happening to our brains and our bodies in this hyper-connected, hyper-stimulated, constantly noisy virtual world that we are creating? His latest book is called Stolen Focus. Why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. And it's part of a long-running interest that Johan's had with... with, uh, with the difficulty of living in the internet age, the difficulty of living with a hyperactive, noisy, constantly stimulated mindset in the 21st century, and whether this is actually making us unhappy, whether it is related to our other broader problems, whether it's a function or a symptom of them, or whether it's a cause of these things. And of course, it's all about our little phones, our black mirrors. Johan, tell me where you, where you grew up up in a place called Edgware, which is the end of the Northern Line in London. So it's a little kind of suburb. Um, and I had a slightly weird family uh, in that suburb because my mum and dad, my dad's from Switzerland and my mum's Scottish. And they met here in London when my dad only spoke 10 words of English and my mum only spoke English. And they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain. It's not a concept that makes sense. <laughs> if there's more than one of them, it ain't a one night stand. And she got pregnant and they thought they had to get married. And really often she'll burst into tears and say, he seemed so fucking nice when I couldn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> and then, then they learned the same language and uh, tragically it all went wrong. And uh, she once said, when I met your dad, he looked like Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. I didn't realize I'd end up with fucking Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> um, so they have a very, they're still together. I mean, they break up and get back together every now and then, but they're, they're together in a kind of insane and disturbed way. Would it, people go, you know, you know, when people say, oh, my family's crazy and they, people picture, I don't know, a possessive Jewish mother, I always want to go, no, no, my family's crazy like the fucking Chucky doll, right? Like, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the charming crazy, it's the deranged madness crazy. But, you know, they've got good qualities as well. And somehow you are the product of this series of one night stands, at least one of them, presumably. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and brought up by this, this rather um, uh, eloquent Scottish lady <laughs> and this strange <laughs> Austrian, uh, 
what a what a world to be brought into. Uh, how did that affect you? Do you think? Well, there was a lot of madness in my family, literal madness and addiction in my family. Um, and uh, they, you know, they had lots of good qualities, but I think, I think it, anyone who's grown up in a really weird environment. I think a lot about, look, I don't want to romanticize it. Childhood trauma is a terrible thing. I do a lot of work trying to reduce the amount of childhood trauma in the world. But I do deeply believe in that thing Rumi, the great Persian poet said, the wound is where the light enters you. There's something about, and I know that we've talked about this many times in relation to your family as well, Andrew. You know, a certain amount of trauma and pain when you're young can either really push you under or can make you really, really resilient and able to survive anything. And I'd like to think, it can also make you very sensitive to other people's pain, you know, and it can make you able to be present with other people's trauma and pain in a way that maybe some people find difficult. So, um, and also for me, just, you know, we talk a lot about humor. It also, it, to me, it's not a coincidence that the Jews and the Irish have the best sense of humor and have the most horrendous histories, right? There's something about going through something bad that really teaches you the necessity of laughing. And one of the things I really hate about what's happened to the culture, and you've been doing such good work on this as you've done so many things, but this kind of, the fact that we can't have a comedian host the Oscars now, because the minute they announce someone, they discover some joke they made in 1993 about, you know, whatever, and suddenly we can't have them. The, 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 the stigmatization of humor is an absolute catastrophe. I would, I, I firmly believe I would not be alive if it were not for my ability to laugh at things, right? because I went through some very extreme things as a child and as a teenager. And if you can't laugh, you're absolutely fucked in life. And, uh, you know, my, my two greatest heroes are Noam Chomsky and Joan Rivers. Um, and I really think Joan Rivers is to me, obviously Joan Rivers had very traumatic experiences in her life. You know, famously, she goes back on stage not long after her husband kills himself. I think the thing she said was, I knew I shouldn't have taken that paper bag off my head while he was fucking me. Right? You know, the the... the you know, Joan Rivers to me a great <laughs> example of how you alchemize pain into into joy and humor, right? And she was an absolute genius. Um, I once saw her say one of the most outrageous jokes I've ever heard anyone say. Uh, it was I saw her live in LA. In my memory, I don't think this can be right. In my memory, it's the day Whitney Houston died, but I don't think that's right. It must have been a little while afterwards. And um, so people will remember Whitney drowned in a bathtub. And Joan comes on stage and she says, she's crying. And she says, I'm so sorry. Um, I know you want me to make jokes. I just feel so sad about Whitney. I feel so sad. And in that lovely American way, everyone applauds. And she says, you know, I met Whitney on the red carpet. I met her many times. I keep thinking I could have saved Whitney's life. If only I'd acted, Whitney would still be here now. And we're all thinking she's going to say, oh, we could have, I could have got her into rehab. She says, Whitney asked me to get in that bath with her. <laughs> and and my vagina is so dry that water would have just gone. She opens her legs. Wash! 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 There's no way that bitch could have fucking drowned. And like, the audience is like, some people start booing. Like, obviously, the gays in the audience are laughing. Some people start booing. And, and she just goes, boo the queen. Boo the fucking queen. It's not going to bring Whitney back. And, like, and I just think, that to me, and then you've got to marry that with Chomsky, very different sensibility, let's admit. And to me, that's like the dream scenario. So I think a lot of, my, if I tried to explain what my childhood was like, I would talk weirdly about Joan Rivers, even though Joan Rivers is a very different person from a very different place, which is, 
extreme trauma punctuated by very, very funny jokes. Yeah. Basically. It's humor comes from the darkest of places, and the best humor comes from even darker places. I mean, that's it's why we have humor. It's in order to vent. The vent. I mean, I, I've talked about this in the past, but my favorite AIDS publication was a was a wonderful little <laughs> zine out I in. I was going to say my favorite AIDS. So I was like, Sorry. My favorite AIDS was the early AIDS. It was it was sort of it hadn't quite mutated into the milder before it was, before it was super AIDS. No, uh, there was a, a magazine out in in Berkeley, California, during the the height of the AIDS epidemic. It was really brutal, and it was called Diseased Pariah News, and it would bring you news of, <laughs> of diseased pariahs every every week, and it would have a centerfold of a nude naked guy wearing 93 pounds, maybe, lesions all over his body. It had the wow. model Brian, opportunistic infections, KS, <laughs> toxoplasmosis, um, T-cells 4. It would have a, a section, it had, a, it had a food recipe section called Get Fat, Don't Die, which was all about eating lots of fatty foods. It had a, a section of obits called Dead Boyfriend Society. Uh <laughs> Its masthead actually said, editors underneath parenthesis, at time of press. <laughs> okay, and then at the bottom of the head, at the bottom of the it masthead, it had dead editors. Uh, it, it was fantastic. <laughs> and it was, it, you can find, it's, it's in the New York Public Library. You can, it actually got a, the whole copy of it in the New York Public Library. But it's actually quite remarkable. Humor uh, is the necessary lubricant of life, right? It's one of the great joys. It doesn't even need a justification. The temptation is to go, oh, it's a social lubricant. But humor needs no more justification than dancing. It's just a fucking joyful thing that human beings do. And what, we, what we've done is we've allowed the most humorless people in the room to silence and shut up everyone else, right? And we've got to stop doing that. If you don't find things funny, we all feel very sorry for you. That's very sad, but we're not going to stop laughing because you are joyless. We've got to stand up to joyless anti-humor. Well, so you you came at life in this rather uh, particular way. Um, darkness, humor, fun. Uh, but you become, in your books, really concerned about the social context in which we are currently living. You, you regard people's depression or the rates of depression in the West in lost connections as a sort of function of, of losing society, really, of losing constant interaction with, with people we know and love and people we kind of just are familiar with. And those networks of friendships and alliances have led to a much more lonely and isolated existence. And then on top of that isolation, we now have this constant assault on our individual attention span. Um, we have a constant assault on our, on our sensibility and in our composure, um, which we have chosen. Of course, this is the other, this is not something that human beings have just had subjected to them by aliens. This is a function of an extraordinary, advanced, successful, wealthy society that is making us, as you think of it, sick. Uh, where did you, why did you uh, start thinking this is this is a problem we have to confront. When, when did this first creep up on you, that we are all far too distracted, far too unable to focus, to even figure our way forward? You know, for years, I felt like my own attention was getting worse. It felt like with each year that passed, 
things that require deep focus that are really deep parts of my character, like reading books, we're getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You and me have been talking about this for years and years. And I remember just saying to people, I remember saying it to you, yeah, but every generation thinks that, right? This is just a perennial human problem. You can read a letter from almost a thousand years ago from one monk to another going, oh, my attention ain't what it used to be, right? Um, and, and I really put off looking into it. And there was a moment in my life that made me realize I had to investigate this. And I remember talking to you the next day about it. So um, it started actually a long time ago. I've got a godson who I call Adam in the book. That's not, not his real name for reasons that will become obvious. And when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. I never understood how or why, but it was particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become this kind of cheesy cliche. So he would go around singing like, you know, Viva Las Vegas and Suspicious Minds with all the heart-catching sincerity of a nine-year-old who believes he's being really cool. And he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. Obviously, I tried to skip the bit at the end where he, you know, dies on a toilet. And one night when I was, when I was tucking him in, he looked at me very intensely <clears throat> and he said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, sure, in the way that you say to nine-year-olds, knowing that tomorrow it'll be Legoland and the next day it'll be the North Pole or whatever. And he said, no, do you really promise? Do you swear you'll take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise I'll take you to Graceland. And I didn't think of it again until 10 years later when so many things had gone wrong. So he was 19 by then. When he was 15, he had dropped out of school. And by the time he was 19, he just seemed to spend almost all his waking life alternating between his iPad, his laptop, his phone, in this kind of blur of WhatsApp, porn, YouTube, uh, Facebook. Just this, it, it was like, it's funny, it happened. I remember this moment we were sitting on my sofa, which is just behind my laptop, where we're talking now. And I remember I'd been trying to talk to him all day. And it was like he was whirring at the speed of Snapchat, right? Where nothing still or serious could touch him. And to be perfectly honest with you, I was not much better that day, right? I was looking at my own devices. And I just looked at him and I just thought, this is no way to live. And I suddenly remembered this moment 10 years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, well, he didn't even remember this moment. And I said, no, we, we, we've got to break this numbing routine. Let's go. We'll go all over the sound. But you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day. You won't take it with you. So he promised. And I think it was two weeks later, we took off to New Orleans where we went to first. And a couple of weeks later, we came to Graceland. We got to Graceland. And when you arrive at the gates of Graceland, this is even before COVID, um, there's no guide to show you around. Um, what happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds. And the iPad shows you around. So it says go left, go right. It describes the room you're in. And in every room you're in, it gives you a digital representation of that room um, that, that you look at. So what happens is everyone walks around Graceland just staring at their iPad. So I'm walking around and I'm getting more and more tense. And I'm, I'm trying to make eye contact with people to say, hey, this is funny. We're the people who travel thousands of miles and actually looked at the thing we traveled to. But the only person I could make eye contact with was a guy who I realized had only looked away from the iPad to take out his phone and take a selfie. We got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland, and there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the husband turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed, I thought he was joking. And I turned and him and his wife are just swiping back and forth. 
And I leaned over and I said, hey, sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room. <laughs> you don't have to look at a digital representation of it. Look, we're, we're actually there. And I sort of waved my hand and they just back away like I'm a crazy person. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he's in the corner looking at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he just could not stop looking. And I, and I marched up to him and I tried to grab the phone off him, which is never a good thing to do with a teenager. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out, but you are guaranteeing you're missing out. You're not showing up to your own life. You're not present at your own existence. This is no way to live. And he stormed off. So I stomped around Graceland on my own. I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying up the street. And he was sitting by the guitar-shaped swimming pool. And he was looking at his phone and I went up to him and I apologized for getting angry. And he said, I know something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that was when I realized I had to investigate attention. So over the next three years, I traveled all over the world from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne. I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And I learned that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors, including many that go way beyond tech, that can make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. What I learned is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention's been stolen from you by these really big and powerful forces. And we are going to have to take those forces on to get our minds back. You mentioned 12. That's rather. Let's, let's, let's talk about a couple of the things that are taking sure. our focus away from us and making us not present in our own lives. Um, one thing, lack of sleep which seems uh, a slightly weird thing, but, but it's, it's the one thing that actually really does typify very modern people, is that we don't sleep as much as we as humans used to. And we, we, uh, we work, especially in the United States, obviously, around the clock. Um, what happened to our ability to sleep? It's funny you say that, Andrew. I'll never forget the day. <laughs> Oh, no. I'm trying to remember the year. It was 2004, I think, when Andrew Breitbart dropped dead. Oh, yeah. And do you remember this? I phoned you about an hour afterwards. And if I remember rightly, this I might be getting the date slightly wrong, but if I remember, no, it can't be 2004. Anyway, I'll say it again without the date. Um, it's funny, as you say that, I'll never forget the day that Andrew Breitbart dropped dead. I phoned you about an hour afterwards. And if I remember rightly, this is not long after the Green Revolution in Iran, and you were obsessively blogging all the time and I had been really worried about your health for a long time you weren't sleeping you were in a real state of mania something I you know could identify myself and I said to you you need to stop doing this because you're going to drop dead like Andrew Breitbart did right this is really really bad for you and not long after you moved away from the kind of blogging that you were. Do you remember that? Day? Do you remember that? I do remember. Uh, it wasn't when he died, but it was later that you remembered that he had dropped mm. dead uh, of a heart attack. A brilliant, uh, right. a brilliant, slightly crazy guy um, that I was quite friendly with. But yeah, I think the yeah. sudden heart attack, it's happened to other people too, um, who are going hell to leather in this kind of atmosphere. And I definitely felt and saw, literally saw, as the dish really became this extraordinary creature that took over all our lives, that, um, that my body and my mind were seriously under threat from compulsive blogging. And that for me was, I felt like I was a kind of leading indicator because I started very early and I was deep in it mm -hmm. and I was 
and I was doing things on a much larger scale in a way than other people, but everybody with a Facebook page was beginning to do what we were doing at The Dish. Everybody was beginning to update their lives every 20 minutes. Um, and, and I began to look around me, and, and after I quit and took a, took a year to kind of recover, I became much more aware of how other people are. Uh, it isn't just a sort of constant distraction. There's also a warping of the personality involved in this at all. I mean, you, I, I've watched people, and you can watch people on Twitter. You can watch them go mad over like two or three, four years. You, they start out perfectly reasonable, and you can watch, literally watch them go slightly bonkers, and sometimes not even slightly bonkers, completely bonkers. People constantly saying, I'm, I'm, off, this, I'm off this app, I'm off this stupid website, and then they come back on it. And of course, I'm including myself in this. Um, is but Andrew, that's, there's so many things what you just said. I want to come back to that in a minute. But just to go back to sleep, because I think it's so important. It was really fascinating interviewing all these experts and really delving very deeply into their research. There were so many things I didn't realize affect our attention that are actually profoundly important to it. And sleep is absolutely one of them. And just to say a little bit about sleep, because I think it's so important. Only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. And I to understand this, I interviewed lots of the living experts, obviously, and there were a few that really helped me to decode this. There's one person, Dr. Charles Seisler, who's the leading expert at Harvard Medical School on sleep. He, he's advised everyone from the Boston Red Sox to the U.S. Secret Service on sleep. And there's a few facts and a few breakthroughs he made that really haunted me. One is he discovered if you stay awake for 19 hours, which doesn't seem like very much, <clears throat> your attention deteriorates to the same level as if you had got legally drunk. But he did this really fascinating piece of research where he put together two bits of technology that hadn't been put together before. It's a te uh, not in the context of studying sleep. There's a technology that can scan your eyes to see what you're looking at. And obviously, there's a technology that can scan your brain to see what's happening there. So we got tired people and he puts them into this machinery. And what he discovered is you can be, to all intents and purposes, visibly awake. You're talking, you're looking around you, you can respond to questions. But whole parts of your brain can have gone to sleep. This phenomenon is called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. So lots of us are walking around literally half asleep. Um, and to understand why this is so bad for our attention, there's a wonderful person called Professor Roxanne Prashad at the University of Minneapolis where I interviewed her. Explain to me, when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. It's healing itself. It's clearing out metabolic waste that builds up throughout the day, taking it down to your liver, flushing it out of your body. When you don't sleep, your brain literally doesn't repair in the same way. And this is catastrophic for your ability to focus and pay attention. And the figures on sleep are quite startling. We now sleep an hour less than people did in 1942. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. Dr. Seisler said to me, even if nothing else had changed, that alone would be causing a really significant dip in our, a really significant crisis in our ability to focus and pay attention. Now, of course, that's not the only change. It interacts with all these other changes, but that alone is the first point. And you're right, it's, it's related to the point we're making about Breitbart and this wider phenomenon. It's part of a wider phenomenon of mania, speed, the idea that downtime and rest is a sort of indulgence, a waste. Um, but sleep is not a passive process. Sleep is a deeply active process. And if you deprive yourself of it, you're depriving yourself of things you absolutely profoundly need in order to be able to focus and pay attention. And the truth is, that, and you say this, and it's true of me too, getting to sleep when you are in the state of mania and distraction, when your mind is, is kind of reeling with data, with words, with arguments, with 
with things that you've heard today on Twitter or things that you've watched on YouTube or the latest Tumblr video that is that is or the Angry Birds you've just been playing on your your iPad. <laughs> uh, I I have to take an Ambien and a half joint to get myself off. It's sort of like an almost an elephant dart to take my, myself down in the evening. And you were in an even even more dramatic position with that at one point, right? I mean, you, you used to have to take yourself out at the end of the day. Yeah, it's funny. I once I once um, I was once in Zimbabwe. I was writing about some um, people who work with rhinos. And when they want to um, do surgery on the rhinos, they have to dart them with this unbelievably powerful uh, sedative that knocks them out. And I watched these these rhinos; they like would like stumble about and then collapse. And I remember looking at that, and thinking, "Oh, that's basically my sleep routine as well, <laughs> right?" So you know, so yeah. We, and the figures for this are kind of incredible: the 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 number of people who are taking sleeping pills, the the um, and the and there's lots of evidence about that. But I think you're absolutely right. It's part of this much wider phenomenon, which are some of the other causes that I write about in Style of Focus, about increased speed. Um, obviously, you've, you've referred to technology and there are key aspects of our tech. So, yeah, this is part of the, the way we eat makes it harder for us to get to sleep. There's all sorts of factors that we can talk about. But, um, but yeah, you're, I think you're totally right. I've also noticed that, for example, even TV shows, the, the, amount of, the, the amount of jokes per second, for example, in a comedy is so much more packed today than it was a generation or two ago. Um, you can see the need constantly to keep people's attention and to keep the pace up so as not to... Uh, you see this also in the use of music everywhere in public to try and keep people in, in restaurants, loud music. It gets you in there and it gets you out quickly so that they can do more, yeah. more turnover. I mean, the one other thing that strikes me is that, yes, this what you're describing is obviously true. We have become a speedier, more instant, uh, I mean, look at the news cycle, which is now every 20 minutes, as it used to be every day. Um, at the same time, the society has made huge technological advances. Uh, you know, we, we, we have unparalleled levels of wealth and comfort that we've never had before. Um, that this has had benefits in terms of, of wealth, of prosperity, um, and we seem to like it. We like being distracted. We, 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 we like, I mean, when you think of something like Twitter, I think of it as a sort of uh, a version online of the old gossip networks that people used to be obsessed with, except they'd find a new bit of juicy gossip maybe once every couple of weeks, whereas now you can get it every 20 minutes. So is it really, is it really holding us back? Yeah, so I thought a lot about this, and I want to stress there's loads of good things about um, about the changes that have happened, and lots of things we want to keep. The way big tech want us to frame this debate is either you pro-tech or are you anti-tech, which of course induces a kind of fatalism. We're not going to all join the Amish and give up our technology, so you just go, oh, we give in, we're going to be pro-tech. That's not the question. The question is not pro-tech or anti-tech. The question is what tech working in whose interests with what goals, right? That's the question you had to be asking. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. But in terms of the, the cost to us, the benefits are very clear. If you think about the cost to us, one of the first people who helped me to unlock this is a guy called Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. I interviewed him at MIT. And he said to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or at the most two things at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. 
the human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale. You and me are going to see, you can only think about one or two things at a time. But we have fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens when people like Professor Miller's colleagues get people into labs? They get them, obviously they get them to, to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And every time you study this, you always find the same thing, which is you can't do more than one thing at a time. What you can do is very rapidly juggle between the tasks. Your consciousness papers over it. It feels like you're, you're doing lots of things at the same time. But it turns out that comes with a huge cost. That the technical term for it in the psychological literature is the switch cost effect. And there's an enormous amount of evidence for it. And the switch cost effect shows that when you try to do lots of things at the same time, you do all of them less competently. You make more mistakes. You remember less of what you're doing. You're less creative. And there was one study, a very small study, that fits with a much wider body of literature and evidence in the scientific literature that really drove this home for me. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got in a scientist to do a little study with some of their workers. And what he did is he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do whatever your task is and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, um, do, do your task and you've got to answer email and phone calls, a heavy load of email and phone calls, the kind that we get a lot of the time. And at the end of this, they tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you and me smoked a fat spliff now and we got stoned together, our IQs would go down by about five points. So being chronically distracted in the short term, there's a debate about the medium and long term, but in the short term, being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your ability to focus as getting stoned. You would be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time, than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and then constantly interrupted. This is why Professor Miller says, the way he put it to me is, we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. And another guy, um, Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon, found that if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But most of us never get to 23 minutes. So when we say we like it, to be clear, there are lots of things we like about this. But I also think at some level, when people hear me say that, I don't think they're like, no way, that can't be true. I think at some level, most people intuitively know that, that we are operating at a diminished level of brain power as a result of being constantly interrupted. And of course, many of the other factors that I write about. And in a way, what that does to you, this may be a melodramatic way of putting it, but I, I feel like what it does is it turns you into a kind of stump of yourself. You can sense what you could have been if you've been able to apply yourself, but you're just lost in this fog of distraction and you don't ever quite become what you want to be. So there are things we like about it, but it's coming with huge costs. So the question is, how do we keep the good stuff and not pay these huge costs? And there are lots of ways we can we can do that. I'm sure we'll get You to. referred to the Amish there. Um, and mm. we have this idea of them as these incredibly anti-technological people um, creating real community without it. But it, they actually do like tech and they use tech, but they have a particular criterion for which technology they will deploy and which they won't, right? And the, the technology that they will is, is the technology that will not separate you from each other. Exactly. It's a brilliant way of putting it. I spent a load of time with an Amish community called Elkhart Lagrange, which is um, outside Fort Wayne in Indiana. And I very foolishly, the night before I went, watched the film Witness, 
I strongly do not recommend that if you're going to go spend time with an Amish community. But the it was totally fascinating, and you know, and it's very challenging for us because you know, I'm a gay atheist, you know, and the Amish are not gay atheists, right? Uh, I mean, some of them are presumably gay, but we don't get to hear about them. But it was fascinating. If you look at, there's lots of evidence that Amish are much less depressed than us. There's some uh, Amish-like communities like the Hutterites. There are good. It's not just a cultural difference in expressing depression there is actually some evidence they experience less depression. I can talk about how if you want, but they're less depressed because their psychological needs are met, right? Human beings, just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. In, we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, right? And it's making us feel absolutely terrible. 41% of Americans agree with the statement, no one knows me well. So I think you're right. These very, Now, the Amish go much further than I would want to, in terms of restricting access to technology. I think actually we need to think about regulating the tech in highly targeted ways. We can talk more about that in a minute. But I think the Amish, the fact that the Amish are so much less depressed than us should be a real reproach to us and should lead us to think about, okay, what aspects of our life can we change? Here's what, here's what, um, here's what one response to that, which is that when you say sure. we change this, it seems to me that we didn't change this, that a bunch of us, basically individualistic, intellectuals, people who are not normal, really, who are kind of marginal to most societies, that, that, that we hated being trapped in a tribe. We wanted to express our unique individuality. We wanted to do that through writing or all sorts of artistic and cultural and political endeavors. And, and the ability for the individual to liberate him or herself in modernity was regarded as a great achievement because we weren't so trapped with lies we didn't want to lead, with religions we didn't believe in, um, with families we despised, uh, with futures that did not seem to in any way match what we really wanted to do. Uh, and we don't want to go back to that. I mean, is there a sense in which undoing this individualism is in fact a slightly scary process? I mean, the, in fact, that it's, it's actually going to violate a lot of people's freedom, that it's going to reimpose kind of social control in a way that modern societies in the West have attempted to, to lessen? I mean, there are advantages, clear advantages to a certain part of the community for this kind of individualistic liberation. Um, so how do you persuade people like me that we really should like belonging to a tribe, even though we don't feel tribal in any way? Well, there's a constant tango in human affairs between individualism and collectivism. And there's no perfect formula, right? So you can imagine the Amish at one extreme and, you know, some contemporary American cities at the other extreme. So you're right. The, the, it's a constant human dilemma. I would argue the Amish go too far towards collectivism. I would not want to be a woman in an Amish community for obvious reasons. And that is half the population. Equally, I would argue we've gone way too far the other way towards individualism as you see in the explosion of deaths of despair in the United States, in the opioid crisis, in, in um, su the huge suicide rate, uh, just the, in one third of all middle-aged women in the United States are taking a chemical antidepressant in any given year. Many more are depressed and are not taking them. You're talking about when, I think it's pretty clear we've gone too far towards individualism, right? If 41% of people agree with how do we? how do you begin well. to undo that, Johan? This is the problem. I mean, how do you take us out of this, which seems to have been a very, you know, cumulative and progressive development, uh, which is kind of, of its nature, a little hard to reverse without some kind of coercive 
uh, mechanism. Well, we definitely don't want coercion. And of course, there are coercive models of collectivism which have invariably been horror shows. So that we, whatever we want, it's not that. But the, uh, I mean, do debar that immediately. But well, let me I ask you a simple direct question. How do we sleep better? Let me just start with the, how do we sleep better? Yeah. So how did you manage to get your sleep all, better? For all of the 12 factors that I'm writing about in the book, uh, no, for 11 of the 12 factors, there are two levels at which we need to tackle them, right, that are harming our attention. One level is individual, right? There are all sorts of changes that we can make in our individual lives that can boost our attention. Um, but there's another level, because I want to be honest with people, and I think this is where my book is a bit different to other attention books. I am passionately in favor of individual action. I've taken it myself. I'm sure we'll talk about lots of the things I've done. It has significantly improved my attention, but I want to level with people that will only get you so far. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then that person is leaning forward and saying to us, do you know what, mate? Um, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. To which the logical response is, yeah, I'll learn to meditate, but we need to stop you pouring itching powder on us, right? So we need to look at the factors that are amping us up, the factors that are pouring this itching powder on us. Now, that's related to sleep, and it's related to a much wider one. So let's look at social media. When I started writing the book, I thought, you know, most of the book would be about tech. I was actually surprised that I don't think that's the biggest factor, and we'll come to some of the others, I'm sure. But um, one of the ways that helped me to understand this, I spent a lot of time interviewing many of the leading dissidents in Silicon Valley, people who designed key aspects of the world in which we live and were horrified at what they've done and are now trying to contain and reverse what they've done. I'll never forget a moment with a guy called Dr. James Williams. James uh, was a very senior Google strategist, key figure at Google, quit, and has become, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And I spoke at a tech conference with people who were designing the kind of things that obsess, you know, everyone's kids is listening. And he said to this audience, if there's anybody here who wants to live in the world we're creating, could you put up your hand? And nobody put up their hand. So there are individual things we can do to control our, uh, we can play defense and offense. Someone put it to me on a podcast the other day, which I thought was a very good way of putting it, summarizing my argument. It's all sorts of things we can do as defense. I did a very extreme form of defense, as you know, because I would have done it without you, which is I went for three months to Provincetown and had no access to the internet. We can talk about that. But there are all sorts of things. So, for example, you can't see this, Andrew, but in the corner of my room, um, I have what's called, something called a K-safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put the lid on, you turn the dial at the top, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and 24 hours. On the laptop I'm speaking to you on, I have an app called Freedom, which I'm constantly lobbying you to get, um, which uh, can cut you off from specific websites, say you had an issue with Twitter, or from the entire internet, however long you tell it to. I have social media permanently blocked on this laptop. So that's an example of one of many on. individuals. Hold on, surely you can sure. reprogram the, 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 the safe so it gets your phone out there sooner than you would want it to, right? I mean, can't you just go no, back I mean, in and reprogram it. it? You have to smash it if you no. want to get it out before the yeah. time? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to smash. If there was a fire or something, you could just throw it against the floor. But you can't, you can't re-engineer it to let your phone out before the specified amount no. of time. That's no. the whole point of it. This is a psychological technique called pre-commitment. I right. interviewed Professor Molly Crockett at Yale about this years ago. Um, you know, if you want to bind yourself 
So we all have things we want to do in the future, but we know we'll crap. So what you've got to do is buy, lock yourself in. So K-Safe is a great example of pre-commitment. Once I've put the phone in there, I've locked in future Johan. There's nothing I can do, right? I mean, I can smash it, but, I'll, but it's quite expensive. You don't want to do that because you have to buy another one. What about phone calls? Classic. If you have someone urgently needs to find you, um, do you just have a regular phone? No, everyone says this to me. I'm not the president of the United States. If there's an invasion <laughs> of Ukraine, I don't have to give fucking orders. Do you know what I mean? Like, what what's going to happen that's so... It's a mate, well, if your mum was sick, if, 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 if a relative of yours had an accident, if someone you know needed your help, um, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I understand. Andrew, Look, I, when, people, when people say that, I always say to them, more than half of your life and my life, we did not have a cell phone. We didn't all die in the streets, right? We were fine. True. Life went on. When did you know, the you cell phone is like 2005? Is that the cell phone? That's when it really I starts happening? I think I happening? got my first one. I met you before cell phones. We met right. in 2002. Right. Because I remember I got, we met because I got, I was flying back from LA to London Heathrow and I changed at Dulles and there was a huge snowstorm in DC and I called you and I called you from a payphone. Um, because I had your number written in a red address book. And you said, oh, come and stay with me if you're snowed in. And that's how we'd spoken online lots of times. And that's how we first met. So it seems so weird to me, the idea that you didn't have a cell phone and I didn't have a cell phone. Right. right? Um, so you think about how recent this is. But so it's, really hard for, in- it's really hard for screenwriters and TV shows because it removes huge amounts of plot, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't not know something and therefore be deluded. I mean, Romeo and Juliet would never have happened. They would have texted each other. We're not going to kill myself. <laughs> Hold on, wait, it's just a... Uh, I agree. It's, it's amazing that we can't really imagine a world without this. Now, I what happens when I did this? I mean, I I, I, I took a year. I didn't take myself completely offline. Um, but at one point, I did do the ten days of 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 total silent retreat with no access to phone or anything mm. or any other person, which is a bit of a uh, let's say I I would not advise it um, to anyone who hasn't got a very serious meditation practice already going. But what it showed me was if you do cut yourself off from these things, there will be a moment. It'll take a while maybe because you might feel relief at the beginning. You might feel a sense of liberation. But there will be a moment when you kind of break down, when you 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 realize uh, in ways you didn't fully realize before what you were distracting yourself from. And distraction is is a wonderful thing for people who are trying to avoid things that they already know and don't want to face. And that, of course, is is. And then when you do remove these uh, these distractions, it can be really quite frightening. Uh, I, I have to say, there was a day or two when I was definitely suffering um, psychologically from a sense of utter loneliness, and I also found myself being dragged back to feelings I had in my childhood, to all sorts of things that seemed to be buried deep in there, but which my constant distraction had kept at bay. So there will come a point if you really do try this kind of pre-commitment of crisis uh, when you really totally. can't, can't handle anymore. Did, did, did a moment like that happen to you in Provincetown with the three months off? Or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to you that day, actually, I was turning up at your cottage and mm-hmm. talking to you about it. Um, so just to uh, explain to people about Provincetown, um, the, when I came back from Graceland, I was so disgusted at myself that I called everyone I knew, including Andrew, and I said, I'm going completely offline for three months. And I'd been to visit Andrew the year before in Provincetown, and I love Provincetown. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to go to Provincetown. So I rented a little uh, sliver of a beach house between Truro and Provincetown. And 
I took my friend Imtiaz's broken old laptop that couldn't get online and I bought a phone that can't access the internet. It's a, the only phone you can buy that can't access the internet. It's called the Jitterbug in the US. It's designed for old people and it has a, a button. If you fall over, you can push yeah. it and it will call the nearest hospital immediately. So advantages plus advantages. <laughs> and um, I went to Provincetown and I remember that first, and of course, Andrew was there the whole time and it, um, the only television I watched was your television. We watched that. This is America. Do you remember oh, yes. We watched the Sasha Banks. Um, yeah. Um, and I remember, so the first week was like a haze of decompression. And then I felt better. And then exactly what you say happened. I was, I was walking down the beach uh, behind Cafe Heaven, you know, that spot. And I was seeing what I'd seen everywhere since, you know, Memphis, everywhere else drove me crazy. People were just not looking at Provincetown. Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. People were just staring at their phones or using Provincetown as a backdrop for a selfie. But instead of being like, oh, you're wasting your lives, you're not being present, I wanted to grab the phones and go, give me that, me, me, I want my social media. Because this is a pretentious way of putting it, but Simone de Beauvoir, the French philosopher, a great French philosopher, much better than her disgusting and evil husband, Jean-Paul Sartre, she, or partner, she, she said once, that becoming an atheist was like the world going silent. And that's how I felt about losing access to social media. It was like the world had gone silent. We, we, we're so acculturated, and indeed these apps are designed to do this to us, to receiving the thin, insistent signals of the web, the thin, insistent rewards throughout the day. And of course, when you leave that behind, no ordinary social interaction floods you with likes, right? <laughs> that would be a bizarre social interaction with a stranger. And there's a moment when you realize you've created a vacuum. And that was when I realized I need to fill this vacuum. And that's when I started to do some more research about flow states. I later interviewed one of the leading experts on this and I started to learn more about it. But, but you're absolutely right that there's several levels to this. There's the level of being deprived of those signals. There's the much more existential level, which is what you're talking about, which is when, you're, when you lose your distractions, you're forced to confront a vacuum of meaning that may have built up in your life. And I think the vacuum of meaning is partly, you know, the average office worker, according to a study by Professor Gloria Marks, who I interviewed, focuses on each task for only three minutes, right? One small study of typical American college students found that they switch tasks every 65 seconds when they're online. Now, a life that has dissolved into 65 second or three minute bursts is a life where you are going to struggle to create meaning. Now, this is not the only challenge to meaning in our society, of course, there's many of them. But that, that's gonna mean that when, when that constant distraction is taken away, that experience you had is gonna be a very typical one. But going through that valley is really worth it because then you can begin to build deeper forms of focus and meaning that are much more, re much more rewarding in the true sense than you know, likes and, and, and retweets. It's also true that the tasks that we give ourselves today tend to be quite abstract, technological in our heads, on a, on a, on a laptop, uh, on a keyboard of some sort. And what humans, of course, have always gained a huge amount of meaning from is practical ability, is skill, is the ability to hone a craft, to do something that you get better at with repetition and develop a kind of a flow with it. Whether this be a plumber or a gardener or, or, or even a house cleaner or, a, or any task you set, you can master a practical task. And, and part of the human brain that's using it is, is also including your body. It's your hands as humans, as tool makers. Um, 
And Matthew Crawford is really good about this. I don't know whether you've read any mm. of his, his books. Sure, of course. But that, but that instead of distracting ourselves mentally all the time, if we could just find a skill, a craft that we could devote ourselves to and see it develop and grow and your own abilities grow with it. Um, I mean, gardening I is one that. such thing. I mean, I think of Josh Marshall, uh, or a friend of mine who runs Talking Points Memo, sure. and he's, he, he runs a crazy website. And he's always, he's like me, he was very early adopter of, of the web. But he makes furniture for his family. And he, uh, the one thing he puts up on Instagram, actually, are his, these tables that he's making, these chairs that he's making. And it's clear it's a hugely helpful balance in his life to be able to do that. I find it really helpful to go to a gym and just push weights around for a while. It's not a particularly intellectual practice, but you can see some growth. Your body is involved. And that is, I think, what you kind of call a flow state. It's not like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, but it is, it's a way in which humans can be happy and also feel meaning in the mastery of a craft. And that's not the same thing as being a widget in a, in a technological world in which you're just doing some technical task that's one of a million that can fit into a broader project. This is your own thing. And it comes from your own body and your own mind. I had a real epiphany about that in the research for the book because there's been an enormous explosion in children being identified with attention problems. For every one child who was diagnosed with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children in that position. And I think part of the reason is related to what you just said. So I don't know. There are some biological contributions to attention problems. For some people, that's a real phenomenon. But I don't, I don't think, and most importantly, the leading experts don't think, that it's a coincidence that there's been an explosion in children struggling to focus at the same time as there's been a profound transformation of childhood away from the things that you've just been talking about. So if you think about my parents' childhoods in very different places, a uh, mountain in Switzerland and a working class Scottish tenement, what happened, my parents would leave home when they were, my parents from when they were five years old, walked to school on their own with a big bunch of kids. They would leave school, they would hang out with all the other kids for a few hours and find their own way home, right? This was how all human childhood worked for pretty much all of human history with a tiny number of exceptions. And then, very suddenly, we stopped almost all of it. By 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outdoors without uh, adult supervision, right? So we put our children under house arrest. Uh, childhood began to happen entirely behind closed doors. Um, and there's all sorts of evidence that this affects children's attention negatively. One obvious no-shit Sherlock social science study, uh, body of social science studies, finds that something as simple as if you run around and exercise, your attention will get better. One of the best things you can do for kids who can't focus is let them run around. We've stopped children from doing that. It's one of the reasons they're so much, much more likely to be obese. And it's one of the reasons they're struggling to pay attention. But and we have just, we just sort of doubled down on that in the epidemic by, yeah, by also separating we, them from each other, by isolating them, putting them, locking them in, these, in their homes with, a, with a, another, another computer that they have to look at, another screen that they look at. But depriving, exactly. depriving children of this autonomy, this agency, and to a certain extent, depriving them of self-responsibility, uh, you're saying has, is, it has impacted their ability to concentrate, to think? Yeah, I think there's good evidence for this. There's many aspects of that transformation that harm attention from um, the deprivation of attention, sorry, the deprivation of exercise 
to the deprivation of the ability to develop what's called intrinsic motivation. You're absolutely right. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, uh, asked to meet me after he read my book, Lost Connections. Um, and I was really moved by what he's been saying in the last few weeks about the mental health effect of the lockdowns, particularly the disbanding of the schools. But there's a really important way I think we can help to see this, uh, that helped me to see it, because I could sort of see that in the abstract. It's when you see these problems being solved that you start to get really moved. So I write in the book about one of the heroes of the book is a woman called Lenore Skenazi. You should totally have Lenore on as a guest. She's an extraordinary, fucking amazing woman. So Lenore runs a group called letgrow.org. And letgrow.org is about restoring childhood and children's autonomy. Lenore believes, like pretty much every developmental psychologist, although she's an activist, not a psychologist, that children need increasing levels of independence and autonomy in order to become psychologically healthy, in order to be able to deploy their attention. But she realized, if you, you can explain that to parents and they intellectually get it, but if you're the only parent who sends your kid out to play, you just look like a maniac, the child gets scared, it doesn't work. So what Let Grow does, and I would urge every parent listening to go to letgrow.org, what, what Let Grow does is they go to whole schools and whole communities and persuade the whole school and the whole community to let children play outdoors again in growing levels of independence, responsibility, and freedom. And I'll never forget, we went to a community in Long Island. We went to several communities in Long Island. We went to a quite poor community um, where they had done this with elementary school children. And then we went to a quite wealthy neighborhood uh, about an hour away, a little bit less, where they'd done this with 14-year-olds. And I will never forget, and this brings back to the Matthew Crawford point, which I think is so important about mastery. There was one boy we spoke to a strapping, healthy, big 14-year-old boy. And until this program had begun nine months before, his parents had never let him leave the house on his own, not even to go jogging around the block. And I asked him why, and he said, because they were so frightened about all these kidnappings, he said. Now, to give you a sense of this neighborhood, this is a town where the, where the olive oil store is across the street from the French bakery, <laughs> right? And his level of fear would have been appropriate if he had been living in Medellin at the height of the Pablo Escobar terror, right? And then this program began, and his parents finally, because everyone was doing it, let him go outdoors. And after a few months, him and his friends went into the woods, and they built a fort. They built a fort together, and they didn't have any cell phone reception there, and they still went there because there was a joy in building something with their hands. So many of the kids said that. And I remember when that Lenore was with me when I met that boy. And I remember when he left, Lenore said to me, think about human history. Think about human prehistory. I think we're not meant to use that term anymore, but you know what I mean. For all of human history, young men and women had to go out. They had to seek. They had to hide. They had to build things. And then in one generation, we took all of that away. And that boy, given a little bit of freedom, went into the woods and he built a fort because there's something very deep in us that wants to do these things. The only way any of our kids at the moment get to explore, unless they're lucky enough to have a Let Grow program, is online. One of the reasons they're so obsessed with video games, not the only one, is because the only opportunity they get to feel they're exploring anything and roaming around is on fucking Fortnite, right? If that's the only place you let your kids roam around, don't be surprised if they become obsessed with it. We've got to do this together. We've got to, if we want to deal with attention problems for children, there are many things we've got to do from the food supply to regulating technology. There's loads of things. The last quarter of the book is about this. But one of the things we've got to do is we've got to restore a childhood that they would recognize, that our ancestors would recognize as a human childhood. There is 
in this book and also I would say in Lost Connections, a sort of meta argument that you're sort of grappling with that you don't quite it's it's and it's a bit reactionary if I if I'll use that term. Um, <laughs> there's a sense that the modern world has made us unhappier. The the way we have constructed our contemporary lives lives is is uh is actually not good for us. That we that 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 our core nature, and increasingly you understand this from evolutionary psychology, um, is being violated by the way we're structuring our society, which is making us unhappy, making us constantly. And whether this be uh, the fact that we have electric lights, so that the last 120 years or however long it's been since most places have had electricity, before that, we had less trouble going to sleep because we had natural light and sun and, and moon and night and, and day rhythms um, that we naturally sync to. There was less noise in the past. Uh, we had to be more connected with our families and our communities because there's no other place to go. Um, it's as if you're making a rather, I don't know, kind of sort of conservative argument about the fact that these great advances have actually maybe uh, have uh, brought more, more harm than good. So I've thought a lot about this, and um, how do I put it? There are a huge number of benefits in modernity. I would not choose to be alive at any other point in human history. We could list an enormous number of advantages and benefits. I'm really glad to be alive today. There are aspects of the direction in which modernity has gone that are unhelpful. And I, I'm not a golden ageist, right? In every other age, there were also dilemmas and problems with the times in which people lived. I think what we can do is identify some things were worse in the past, some things were better in the past. And um, I do think there's a lot of truth. So Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention, who I interviewed in Portland and Oregon, said to me, we need to start asking if we're living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment which is making it really hard for most people to pay attention and focus. Just like we know we live in an obesogenic environment, an environment which is easy to become obese and hard to lose weight, right? And I say that as someone who literally has a KFC bucket behind his laptop from earlier. Um, the, um, so I think, in a sense, there's a temptation to be the Jeremiah to go, oh, this is just a problem of modernity. But I actually think that lets a lot of these forces off the hook the forces that are specific within our current iteration of modernity, specifically causing these problems. So, um, for example, so, the way in which uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, Metaverse or whatever the fuck is called now, um, <laughs> has actually honed techniques and algorithms that you can have social media, but they have created and crafted, deliberately fine-tuned the kind of social media that will keep you coming back, that will keep your emotions aroused, your, your rage uh, triggered, uh, your outrage constantly being, uh, being, being uh, evoked. Uh, and this is a deliberate strategy. You could have social media which is not, as Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter are doing, is not actually designed to promote outrage and stuff that to promote you spending more time essentially on these platforms. I mean, I, I have to say, I have a, I, I have, I, I keep track of my um, time spent online. Uh, I, I'm shocked. I mean, I, it's still shocked. Most people are, I think. 
10 hours a day I spent looking at a screen? 10 hours? That can't be right, right? But it turns out it is right. Um, and the one great insight I had when I was blogging was that I always thought as this, as this new world emerged that I was adding this online life to my regular life and therefore it was a plus. How could it not be? All this stuff is extra. This is, we can mm -hmm. talk to people elsewhere. We can, I can talk to my friends. I can, talk to, I can FaceTime my mom, blah, 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 blah. Um, it turns out uh, that, in fact, it replaced my life. It, 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 time is zero sum. And your days have a fixed amount of hours in them. And the more you spend looking at a screen, the less you spend looking at a human being or looking at a tree, looking at, looking at your street, reading a book. Let's go to reading books, for example, because that was another lovely part of this book. The reading of fiction seems a rather trivial pastime. Uh, and I certainly need to get back to doing more reading of fiction. But you were saying it actually, the reading of fiction actually is a great, great for the brain, great for the mind, and great for the soul. Explain yeah, how just, reading fiction uh, does this. Yeah. Prompt me to come back, if it's okay, Andrew, later on, if we can, to the questions about the business model and social media, because I think you've just touched on okay. one of the key aspects of this. But you're totally right. So this is the first time in the history of the American Republic that most Americans in any given year do not read a single book. 54% uh, of Americans don't read a book. And uh, there's a slight uptick under COVID, which is encouraging, but it was slight. And it was the first time that trend has not been going downwards and downwards for an extremely long time. And as you know, I remember I was talking about this in Provincetown, whenever you would see me, you'd be like, how come you've got another fucking book? I had a real heartbreaking moment in, in Provincetown because, the, um, as you know, Andrew, there's a completely amazing place in Provincetown called Tim's Used Books that you introduced me to which is a gorgeous, big, dusty, musty secondhand bookstore. And the summer I was there, there was a young woman who worked there who was really intelligent. And I was going in to buy books all the time because my attention, it staggered me how much my attention came back. I thought I had just degenerated because I got older a bit. My attention went back to what it had been when I was 17 for reading. Yeah, this was, I mean, I but go, you're, you're a bit of a freak. In it. I mean, you, you read novel after novel after novel. I mean, your ability to read, I mean, I never had that ability to read that quickly. Um, but it was it was fascinating, Andrew, because this woman in this young woman, I guess she was in her mid twenties, in Tim's used bookstore. Every day I'd go in, she would be reading a different book. She'd be reading like you know James Baldwin or Tolstoy or whatever. And and I remember saying to her one day, oh "God, you you read fast." And she said, "No, um, I can only read the first chapter of any book, and then I just can't focus anymore." And it was there was some really haunting things. Like, God, you're surrounded by all this literature. The best books ever written. You're so clever. She was really smart, and yet she couldn't do it. She couldn't read. It was like it was some, like some awful, you know, vision of like, you know, uh, 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 it, it felt almost dystopian. But it's interesting. So if we think about the reading of fiction specifically, there's a, a brilliant academic called Dr. Raymond Marr who's done fascinating research on this. So he hypothesised that one thing fiction might be is a kind of empathy gym, right? When you read a novel. You are imagining what it is like to be another person in incredible detail for a really long period of time, right? And he hypothesized maybe when you do that a lot, it carries over and you're better at empathy in the outside world. I can explain all his research methods, but I think he quite persuasively showed that that is in fact the case. His research has shown reading fiction really does boost your empathy, that it's actually a much better virtual reality machine than what we call 
virtual reality and it helps you to understand the inner lives of other people. And the decline of the reading of fiction in particular, and at one stress, he, he says that all long-form simulated social universes, so a very long-form TV series, can perform a similar function. It's not just the reading of books. But when we get into much more fragmentary states, right, when you're not immersed in imagining what it's like to be another person, but you are very briefly seeing fragments of other people's lives, like on Instagram, that does not, I'm going beyond Professor Ma's research now, but I would argue, does not inculcate empathy. Indeed, I thought a lot about when I was in Provincetown, something I'd never understood before. Although I'd read Professor Nicholas Carr, uh, sorry, I'd read Nicholas Carr writing about it. Um, you know that famous phrase that Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message, right? Mm -hmm. I never really understood it. But I read McLuhan in Provincetown. I bought, in fact, I bought a copy in Tim's used books. And McL what McLuhan was arguing, if I understand him correctly, is when the new technology comes along, he was thinking about television. We think of it as a pipe. Information goes in at one end, we just get it at the other. But actually, every new technology is more like putting on a set of goggles. You start to see the world as being shaped by those goggles. So when you start to absorb television, it doesn't matter if you watch The Wheel of Fortune or The Wire, you start to see the world as being shaped like television. The world is very fast. The world is all happening simultaneously. It's all sorts. Think about even, when you think about your memories, they will often look like television memories because that we've, that we've grown to see the world through the goggles of television. So buried in every medium, there is a hidden message. And I started thinking about this in relation to Twitter, which I could no longer access, and books. So think about Twitter. What is the hidden message in Twitter? It doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump or Bubba the Love Sponge or Bernie Sanders. When you tweet, you're assenting to a, a range of messages. The first is the world can and should be described in 280 character verse. Is it 280 or 240? Isn't it? I've said that wrong. I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's 280 or something. 280, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the first is that the world can and should be described in 280 character bursts. That is a sensible way to describe the world, right? I saw on a news show recently, they said, tweet us your thoughts about the Israel-Palestine conflict, <laughs> right? So the, 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 the Israel-Palestine conflict can be sensibly described in 280 characters. The second message, which is even more important, is what matters most is whether people immediately agree with your simplistic description, right? And I realized one of the reasons I felt so liberated when I was no longer in that machinery is I don't think those messages are true. I think very few useful things can be said in 280 characters, unless you're a Japanese haiku artist, and I don't see many of them on Twitter. Uh, very few things can be described helpfully in 280 characters. And whether people immediately agree with you is literally irrelevant. In fact, it may be a bad sign. If people, people did not immediately agree with you when you wrote the Virtually Normal, the first book about gay marriage that led to so many transformations and was quoted by the Supreme Court, um, it, that's because you were right and because you were advancing an argument that was not otherwise being, that was, that was only being advanced by a handful of people. Uh, but but what, is the medium, what is the message buried in the medium of the physical book? It is slow down. Think about just one thing for like 10 hours. Imagine what it's like to be somebody else. See the world through their eyes. Those messages are true. It made me realize why even when I win at Twitter, when I'm doing well on it, I'm getting loads of retweets. I feel weirdly out of joint because I don't believe the messages in that medium are true. I believe the messages in the book are, are maybe this sounds pompous or 
But I think they are, at some level, morally true. It is a better life if you slow down. It is a better life if you think about what life is like from other people's point of view. It is a worse life if you are disintegrated into a hailstorm of 280 characters and you're constantly thinking, did everyone agree with me? Was I ratioed? Oh my God. So for me, reading is, you know, reading the reading of books is, is of course, it's not the only medium through which people can access these deeper forms of thought, but it's such a, a precious one and one of the worst aspects of the current attention crisis, and I argue in the book that we really are facing a serious attention crisis that we have to deal with, one of the worst aspects of it is that the, the physical form of the book, which has been how all, almost all the greatest insights in the last 400 years have been advanced, is slipping away from us. And that is something I really worry about. Yeah, there's also um, a novel or a, a book from the position of someone else it requires a certain amount of abandonment of narcissism to read it, to enter someone else's world. Totally. And Twitter and Instagram are really designed to entrench narcissism, I think, because it's all about what I think and how many people agree with me. It's not about let me enter a world which I do not know where I might learn something. It is, I already know everything. Now approve of me. This whole idea, of, and I agree with you, this whole mm. idea, oh, he was ratioed. It's meaningless. What on earth does that mean? Does it, what does it mean that someone has a thousand, a million readers, followers on Twitter as opposed to 20? Nothing at all with respect to the validity or accuracy or truth of what they're saying. Instagram is also a clear instrument of lies. I mean, every single Instagram yeah. shot is a kind of PR event for yourself. Uh, and you get this idea of other people too that are utterly different than you that are living these wonderful lives that are and and you feel alienated and angry and sort of it, it and, and, and if you're a teenage girl for example instagram is just deadly um because you're, you're, so you're con- that, because that is you're they, so right uh, go on sorry no no you're so right i remember after my ted talk came out about depression being absolutely inundated by direct messages on 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 instagram from people who present this perfect life, particularly por- actually porn stars, sadly all female porn stars, the gay ones can feel free to get in touch, uh, and and like fitness obsessives, and talking about how depressed and miserable they were, and literally, you know, you would switch from their direct message saying how miserable they were to a picture they had just posted talking about their perfect life. But I think it's really important for us to think about, and this comes back to something you were saying before, Andrew, a really important point you put really well before which is about, so some of this is inherent to social media, but a lot of it is the direct result of the the current business model. And there is a solution to that. And there's a historical analogy that really helped me to understand this. It was explained to me by Jaron Lanier, a great um, tech designer and kind of tech guru in Berkeley in California. So you'll, you'll remember this, Andrew. I can just remember it. It used to be normal that people would paint their homes with leaded paint. And people would put leaded gasoline in their cars. I can remember my mother putting leaded gasoline in her little red mini. Um, and it had been known since the 1920s. I mean, they actually knew going back to ancient Rome that exposure to lead was really bad for you. But by the 1920s, it was known pretty well that exposure to lead was particularly damaging to people's attention and ability to focus. But the lead industry funded a whole bullshit denialist industry, a bit like the climate denial uh, industry. And... Um, but by the 1970s, the evidence was so overwhelming that there began to be that this was damaging, particularly children's attention and focus, that um, there began to be movements, particularly of mothers, 
to ban leaded paint and leaded gasoline. So by the 1980s, it was banned in the United States and Britain. So it's important to understand what they identified. There was a specific element in our paint and our petrol that was damaging people's attention. They did not argue we should ban all paint. They did not argue we should ban all gasoline. They argued that we should ban the specific aspect that's harming our attention. And I would argue, and I learned from many of the people who designed these systems, that there is a kind of equivalent for Facebook, for TikTok, for Snapchat, and so on. And Asa Raskin, who designed a key part of how the internet works, his dad, Jeff Raskin, designed the Apple Macintosh for, for Steve Jobs. Asa said to me, look, if you want to understand what we have to do to repair this aspect of our attention, you've got to, fix, you've got to do one thing. It's the first step. You've got to ban the current business model. The current business model is very simple, right? This is me talking now, not him. Every time you open Facebook, they make money in two ways. First way is really obvious, you see ads. Second way is much more important. They scan and sort everything you do to build up a profile of you to figure out how to hack your attention, what will keep you scrolling, how to invade your attention, and they sell that to advertisers. As you wrote on The Dish years ago, you're not the product, sorry, when it comes to these social media companies, you're not the customer, you're the product they sell to the advertiser. This means all of their algorithms, all of their engineering power are designed to do one thing. How do I get Andrew to pick up his phone more and scroll longer? That's it. Just like the head of KFC wants you to buy fried chicken, Facebook wants you to scroll longer and longer and longer and longer. And every time you stop doing it, that's bad for their bottom line. Yeah, the, so it's designed to, yeah. The line is, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. <laughs> exactly. In other words, that I mean, one thing that Substack has done, and which which we did at the Dish, we never accepted advertisement. Now, part of that was because we we're too too few of us to organize it, and because it's incredibly complicated and difficult. But because I also felt that if you had a subscriber model to, as opposed to a an attention model, if you had a subscriber model that someone supported something for a year, and if you also showed that the platform itself was interested in advancing what might broadly be called things that are true or the things that are false. You can create... Oh, I know, I'm being silly again. But, but, uh, <clears throat> but you can create <laughs> a very successful form of online media that is not purely designed in its, in its DNA to keep you attached to it because it's trying to sell you shit or trying to sell you to companies that are, that are going to make money off of you. In other words, you can build in other kinds of incentives to online media that are not the incentives that are now driving this attention-destroying environment. And, and, that, and I think subscriptions are an important thing. I think, uh, but then there's also just simply the way in which they, they, they focus on what kind of arouses us as opposed to what actually informs us. Um, and I don't want you know I don't want to be a kind of high-minded person here in the sense that obviously all media has to has to seize your attention, has to be entertaining, has to be engrossing. But if it's all specifically designed to make money off your obsessive addiction, then it will create addiction. If it's designed to actually advance some other goal, like finding out more about the world that makes sense, then it can be a very beneficial. Uh, possibly. How, but how do you legally do that? I mean, how do you uninvent the algorithms which are designed to do this? Yeah, so we don't want to uninvent algorithms. We want to change the business model for exactly the reason you just said. That those are two slightly different things. So I remember saying to Aza, Aza saying to me, just like we banned lead in 
paint and petrol, we should just ban the current business model. We just say you cannot have a business model that's based on finding out weaknesses in people's attention, hacking them and selling their attention to the highest bidder. And I remember saying to him, right, and, and lots of the other people who said this to me in Silicon Valley, right, but let's say we did that. The next day, do I open Facebook and it just says, sorry, we've gone fishing? And he said, of course not. They would have to move to a different model. One is subscription, which you just talked about. Another potential model might be, you know, before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we've got cholera. So we all pay for the sewers to be built and we all own them together, right? You own the sewers in DC, I own them in London. It may be that like we own the sewage pipes together, we might want to own the information pipes together so that we, because we're getting the attentional equivalent of you, cholera. You, you, now you'd have to make sure that was independent of government. You'd have to have a model like the BBC, the most respected media body in the world. You, obviously it'd be catastrophic if it was owned by the government for all sorts of reasons that are so obvious. I don't need to go into them. But, but, how, I I mean, you, but at the same time, how would you ever insulate it from government pressure? Because you're, you're nationalizing it essentially. Well, there's always the threat that the government could nationalize anything, right? So that, I mean, the government could do that with anything. In America, uh, not so much. I think there are ways. <laughs> I mean, I, do, yeah, I just well, don't know true. legally how you do it. I mean, I, yeah. I, uh, uh, in general, I'm a little <laughs> leery of a rather ham-handed attempts to 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 shift the private sector's business models. I mean, they're trying to make profits. How do we say you can't make a profit, or you must make a lower profit? But I think, I think you. There's all sorts of things we say that people can't. I mean, the lead industry, for example, mm -hmm. was an enormous industry. We just said, look. For you to pursue your business model is so profoundly harmful to the society and particularly to our children, we're not going to allow you to do it, right? Now, of course, that doesn't mean social media disappears. But the key thing is when you move to a different business model, whether it's subscription or public ownership of some kind of public ownership independent of government, all the incentives change. Suddenly, you're the customer. So they have to ask, oh, what does Andrew want? Oh, Andrew wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's redesign our algorithms to, to heal his attention rather than harm them. There's all sorts of ways that can be done. I go through some of them in the book. But I think you've got to a really important thing as well, which I would say that is difficult. That is hard to do. You're absolutely right. What happens if we don't do it socially, right? And I think this relates to lots of the things you've been writing about, Trumpism, wokeism. Um, and I think you have to understand it in relation to uh, deeper psychological phenomenon. So two things have come together. You've got a business model premised upon getting you to scroll as long as possible. So all the algorithms are trying to figure out what keeps people scrolling. And this was not the intention of anyone who designed them. I've got to be clear about that. They didn't design it this way. But that bumped into a deep human truth that's been known about for a long time by psychologists, which is called negativity bias. So anyone who's ever seen a car accident knows what negativity bias is. Human beings will stare longer at things that shock and anger and frighten them than they will at things that make them feel good. You stared longer at the car crash than you did at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street, right? This is very deep in human nature. 10 week old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a, than a happy face. Probably for obvious reasons in our evolution, humans who are more alert to danger are more likely to survive. But this has a horrific effect when it combines with algorithms designed to maximize engagement. Picture it as simple as this. Picture two teenage girls, you mentioned them before, who go to the same party and go home on the same bus. And one of them does a status update where she says, that was a really nice party. Everyone looked good, I had a great time. And the other one goes, Karen was a fucking hoe at that party. Her <laughs> boyfriend's a prick. Uh, she stank like shit. You know, just a stream of abuse. Now the algorithms scan both. They look for words that are anger, anger and outrage based because they know that that will engage people more. The algorithms will put, the current algorithms will put 
the first status update into a few people's feed and the second status update into loads of people's feeds. Because if it's enraging, it's engaging, it will keep people scrolling. Now that is bad enough at the level of two teenage girls on a bus. When you do that at the level of the entire society, we're in real fucking trouble. As we know from the leaked data we now have from Facebook. After the election of President Trump and the Brexit vote, Facebook set up, commissioned its own data scientists to do internal research into figuring out if they had contributed to the problem. Thanks to Francis Haugen, we, those were leaked to the Wall Street Journal. And we know that Facebook's own data scientists discovered that they were supercharging polarization. Indeed, what they said was it was inherent to the current business model for them to supercharge polarization division for precisely the reasons we're talking about. And the only solution was for Facebook to abandon its current business model. That's what Facebook's own scientists said. And there's a very dry line in the Wall Street Journal um, news story about this, where they said something like, after receiving this report, Mark Zuckerberg asked that he not be brought any more reports like this, <laughs> right? They know what they're doing. What One in four of all the people who joined neo-Nazi groups in Germany, joined them because Facebook specifically recommended they join them. You might want to join, it said, followed by a neo-Nazi group, right? Now, how much more of this, think about Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, who our friend Glenn Greenwald does amazing work resisting and exposing. Um, Jair Bolsonaro was an obscure far-right senator, washed up and forgotten until the Facebook algorithms and the YouTube algorithms started to pick him up and amplify his message. It's not the only thing that changed in Brazil, but it was a really significant one. And he ran, you know, it promoted his hateful far-right messages. And the night he won, what did his supporters chant? Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Because they knew what had helped, what helped make him win. Now, I would argue our social fabric cannot deal with much more of the polarization we've got. As you know, I've spent most of the plague in Las Vegas because uh, researching a book there. The degree of the social polarization we're having in the United States is untenable, right? And it, you, obviously you warn about this a lot. If everyone is plugged into an anger, polarization and hatred machine for two hours a day, that anger does not go away when they leave that polarization machine behind and they're going about their everyday lives. So yes, it's costly, to force these companies onto a different business model. But the cost of not doing it, I would argue, is way higher. Think of, look at what the UN said about the genocide in Myanmar, Burma. Facebook's algorithms massively amplified. Again, this wasn't the intention of anyone at Facebook, of course. But, these, but they are knowingly doing it. Their algorithms massively amplified the hatred towards the Rohingya, the Muslim minority, and hugely supercharged the genocide. These are visions of where we're headed if we don't deal with these rage and hatred machines it also means collective attention. that we lose grip of reality because the truth is most people aren't actually in their everyday lives as polarized as they seem to be on social media that that we so for example we have this huge question how do we i mean I've, i'm trying to go what do we do about january 6th like was it does it really imply a, a society-wide breakdown of support for democracy is it is it, um, was it a, or was it a, a bunch of extremists whipped up in a particular context that are really not that representative of most people and, and forcing us into crises and into 
polarized standoffs in a way that we don't really need to have. I mean, they're entertaining from the point of view of the the social media user. Um, you know, you see those little the, the little emoji of the popcorn thing. Oh, great! We're going to watch another existential culture war fight on 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 social media. But this may make us misunderstand each other entirely. It may mean that we as ascribe certain motives to people we disagree with that are actually distortions of their actual motives. That that, that just as the outrage is selected, it also to keep us there. It also distorts our understanding of reality. In other words, we, we may be not in as parlous a state as we think we are, although maybe what we think we are is the parlous state that we're actually in. But I, I, there is a question here of, of what is real and what isn't? How much of this is generated by the medium itself and how much is the medium reflecting reality? And I, I agree that's an incredibly difficult thing to unravel um but andrew i i think you're right but i really worry about there's a phenomenon in sociology called mutual radicalization yeah so i think it was initially documented in east germany i might be getting the details of this wrong because i haven't written about it but what they basically showed is if you have a neo-nazi march that hugely catalyzes islamic fundamentalism which then catalyzes more neo-nazism which then catalyzes more islamic fundamentalism that, that extremes feed off each other and grow as a result and I think you're right that most people are not currently polarized in the extreme and vicious ways that social media shows. But you don't need that many people to be extremely polarized in a society to make it very hard to govern. And also, I don't even think we're just talking about the margins. I mean, Trump did become the president, right? Brexit did happen. Bolsonaro is the president. And the fact that it's happening in countries as different as Brazil and Britain, hard to imagine two countries more different, does tell you something about the, how these underlying mechanics, of course, these are not the only factors that drove Brexit and Bolsonaro. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. But I do think we have to challenge, we have to challenge this machinery. And to do that, we, partly what we have to do is shift our psychology. Because at the moment, what we do, I think, is when it comes to, in, this is true for both individual and collective attention, which are different but related phenomena. When I felt my own attention getting worse, I would blame myself. I'd say, oh, you're lazy. You don't have good willpower. You're not strong enough. And with collective attention, we tend to, we, you know, with the breakdown in our ability to talk to each other, we tend to all blame the other side, right? Republicans blame Democrats. Democrats blame Republicans. We get into this cycle of rage. But I think we need to, we need to shift our, we need to shift the way we think about this. You know, these phenomena are happening for many reasons, but one of them is related to one of the 12 causes that I write about in Style of Focus, which is this increasingly invasive technology. And I would argue the shift we need to make is to realize we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we own our own societies. And we can take on the forces that have stolen them. And Dr. James Williams, the attention expert I mentioned before, don't forget, he said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can fix a lot of these things if we want to. We can have an internet that has many good aspects, but isn't premised upon a model maximally designed to invade our attention. And as a consequence of that, is maximally enraging us to make us angry. That is a disastrous model. It's disastrous for our kids. It's disastrous for us. There is a different way this could work that is totally practical. It is technologically easy. It is politically feasible. 
but we do have to fight to get there. And a big part of why I argue in the book is obviously there's lots of things we can do as individuals to make our attention better. I'm passionately in favor of those individual changes. I've made lots of them myself. But I would argue we also need an attention movement, just like we needed and need a feminist movement so, but so women could reclaim control of their bodies and their lives. I would argue we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. We need to take on these big elements, whether it's the food supply system, the way we eat is really damaging our focus. There's a whole range of things. Uh, we need to take on these elements, but a lot of that has to be done collectively. It has to be done together, as well as the individual changes. Stolen focus, the way you can pay attention and how to think deeply again, is Yohan Hari's new book. Really fun to read. You can absorb all sorts of lessons from it for yourself, for the society as a whole. Uh, there are parts of it I, I didn't find as persuasive as other parts, but uh, I think no one who reads this will not be better informed about the choices that we can actually make. And I think the one thing that you ended on, which is this refusal to entertain fatalism with respect to this, is, is, uh, is, is quite refreshing. I mean, I, I kind of feel a lot of the time just at, at, at the mercy of these forces, as opposed to, and I might be able to carve out an individual exception for a period of time, but I, 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 the idea that we could have an attention rebellion, as it were, um, or attention movement, um, well, we'll see, won't we? At some point, the problems this, 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 this attention deficit are creating is gonna be so great, we're gonna have to take some kind of action. But, you know, Andrew, one of the reasons I'm not fatalistic is because of you, and, it's a story, people can look, I tell this story in lots of other podcasts, it feels weird to tell it to your face, but when I get fatalistic and I think, oh fuck, we're up against such big forces here, I think a lot about you in 1994, I'm going to do an annoying thing and tell a story about you to you, but for people who don't know, and I really recommend people read Andrew's incredible book, Love Undetectable, that tells part of the, a big part of the story. In 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive at the height of the AIDS crisis when as far as anyone knew, that looked like a death sentence. And his best friend, Patrick, had just died of AIDS. And so Andrew went to Provincetown thinking he was dying. And he decided to write a really, a book about a really radical utopian idea that no one had written a book about before. And, you know, as Andrew described and described to me, he thought, well, I'm not going to live to see this. No one alive today will probably live to see it, but maybe someone will pick up this idea somewhere down the line. And the idea he wrote the first book about was gay marriage. And I get depressed and I think, oh, fuck, we're up against these forces. I try to imagine going back in time to a little cottage in Provincetown in 1994 and saying to you, okay, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but whatever it is, 24 years from now, A, you're going to be alive, right? That would have blown your fucking mind. Yep. B, you'll be married to a man. That would have blown your mind. Yep. C, I'll be with you the day the Supreme Court of the United States quotes what you've written when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. And the next day, you'll be invited to a White House lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to have dinner with the president to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? <laughs> Every aspect of that would have sounded like the most... It'd be like me saying to you, Sir Andrew, 24 years from now, a trans president is going to invite us to crack with her in the Oval Office, right? It would have like fucking ludicrous nonsense. It happened. It happened because you fought. You didn't give up. You persuaded lots of people to join you. You know... If, if these forces seem powerful, and they are, these forces invading our attention, I've got to tell you, they're not half as fucking powerful as homophobia. We had 2,000 years of gay people being imprisoned, beaten, killed, 
And in the space of a few generations, partly because of the amazing work that Andrew did and because so many people opened their hearts and listened, we've come just an unthinkable distance from where you and I began when we were teenagers. No injustice is inevitable. We don't have to put up with this. We don't have to tolerate our minds being invaded and fucked with in this way. If anyone can teach us that, it's you, right? Johan, you're very sweet to say those things about me. Um, but it, you know, it. For a pessimist, I have I have plenty of reason in my own life <laughs> not to be. Um, and uh, this is true. And I I do think about that sometimes when I feel particularly beleaguered. And you're right; it's important to remember we have changed the world in the past, and we can change it in the future. And if this is destroying our society, destroying our politics, wrecking our democracy, ruining our well-being we can say no and we can try and marshal the arguments for why it's bad for us which is important which is what you do in this book but we can also organize and we can also speak and persuade each other um johan my dear friend um it's a oh. real honor and love to have you here um uh i wish you all the best with this book um Hooray. i really believe in what you're you're trying to to do and um good luck with it Oh, it's a total joy. You know, um, it's funny at the end of um, at the end of a podcast a while ago, I got in trouble because uh, the podcast host said to me, you know, uh, they said, "What's your book's website for this book?" It's stolenfocusbook.com. But the where well, you can hear where to get the audio book and ebook and physical book. But um, at the end, the guy said to me, "So, what's your Twitter?" And I said it. And he said, "What's your Facebook?" And I said it. He said, "What's your Instagram?" And I said it. And then he said, "What's your Snapchat?" And I said. I am a 41-year-old man. The only 41-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, right? And you know that TV show, you know the show To Catch a Predator? Yeah. I said, the next season of To Catch a Predator should be really simple. They should go up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat handle? And if they have one, immediately throw them in the fucking van, right? Anyway, this guy didn't laugh at all. I'm and sure he did. I later looked it up. He's a man in his 50s with a, a big Snapchat presence. <laughs> so I'm really glad that I got through this podcast without accidentally calling you a pedophile. Um, I'm thrilled by that. I'm, uh, also, low bar. I'm also relieved, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, you go for like, uh, you, you're, you're the opposite of a pedophile. You go, not quite. I like, yeah, I like, I like real men with lots of back hair and stuff. Yes, I'm that kind of, <laughs> I'm a, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Um, no interest in Brilliant. boys of any kind whatsoever um, Johan thank you so much we'll see you all next all week right. we have an amazing lineup coming up So, and thanks for, for listening the numbers for the podcast are really good as are the numbers for the weekly dish we're doing really well um, and thank you for that um, subscribe to get all of it um, there's a lot of content coming your way if you subscribe um, but you can always listen to the podcast. Here we are on another one. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Can't wait. Bye. 